Hey folks, greetings to you. Hope everybody's doing real well wherever you are in the world. This is Andy, Andy Kimball, co-host of the Andy and Amanda Show, flying solo without my partner and co-host of our show, Amanda. Because what we're going to do, and what I'm going to do right now, is is kick off a very special series that we're going to be presenting, uh, that we're going to be interspersing with our own regular broadcasts of the Andy and Amanda Show, uh, dedicated to the investigation of our species, how we came to be, the human career, evolution. And this special series is going to feature guests, noted guests, celebrities within their own field, so to speak, researchers, scientists, lecturers, professors, folks that have been out in the field, folks who have written books and who have various theories and who answer some serious questions that we will present and that you callers will present regarding how we got here, theories of evolution. This is being done in tribute to the passing of my brother, my great brother, Bill, who recently died. His death is uh, being felt by hundreds of people around the world, uh, colleagues and friends um, who he's who he deeply touched as well uh, in his work and research. And uh, uh, it's, it's absolutely tragic, too, too young, absolutely too young. So anyway, um, given that, I really am convinced that you're going to find this presentation informative, exciting, uh, if you uh, challenging maybe to some, to some. Um, you know, we can we can talk about evolution. We could talk about uh, what the word theory means in science, which is in, indicative of a very high level of certainty. You know, science talk about evolution as a theory, for instance. Just as they talk about Einstein's explanation of gravity as a theory. Um, you know, a theory is an idea about how something in nature works that has gone through rigorous testing, through observations and experiments, can produce repeatability, reproducibility. Um, and these experiments are designed to prove the idea of something being right or wrong. And when it comes to the evolution of life, various philosophers and scientists, including, you know, scientists and philosophers going back to the 18th century, uh, Charles Darwin's grandfather uh, proposed different aspects of what later would become evolutionary theory, but evolution did not reach the status of being a scientific theory until, you know, Charles Darwin himself, which is obviously more famous, uh, published his famous book um, on the origin of species. A lot of you might be familiar with that title or that book. Maybe some of you have read that book. Um, anyway, we're going to, to touch upon and explore the human career, and I'd like to invite you all to take part. 515-605-9888 during our live shows. Our live shows are Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern time, whatever the time zone is in your corner of the world, because I know we do go into 22 countries around the world as a live show and, and also as a podcast. And uh, during a live show, give us a call, and we'll be, uh, of course, announcing who our guests are going to be as we continue this special series. Some will be pre-recorded, some will not be. This is pre-recorded. You can't call in during this show. And without further ado, I'd like to, it's, it's actually an honor and a pleasure to be able to introduce my own brother, William Kimball. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, thank you to the organizers here of CARTA uh, for inviting me to participate. And thank uh, all of you, great crowd, for coming out to, to see this fascinating topic explored. I tend sometimes to be accused of nihilism with regard to the origin of Homo. 
Because my view is we actually know nothing about the origin of Homo. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> and the reason is simple in my view, is that while it is true that we have a pretty good fossil record of the genus Homo, the Homo lineage, as Bernard just finished explaining, by around two million years ago with some diversity and different, packed, different adaptive packages in different species, Erectus, Habilis, Rudolfensis, on the assumption that these three forms shared a common ancestor at some point, that common ancestor lived older than two million years ago in a period of time in which we have not a fender and a tire and a piece of gear shift, but in which we have a fragment of tire tread, <laughs> which we have a fragment of a headlight, and we are trying to reconstruct a history, evolutionary history of a group for which we basically have a car wreck. <laughs> and this is what we have to solve. This is the problem we have to solve. And this comes from field work. And I'm going to illustrate for you today, in, in my view, where I think the genus, the homo lineage arose and where we have to redouble our efforts for increasing the representation of this lineage older than two million years ago. Now, as Bernard ably suggested, the modern history of the study of the evolution of the genus Homo really begins with, the, with the Louis Leakey and his colleagues and the recognition of the species Homo habilis in 1964. Based on material from Bedouin at Olduvai Gorge dated to between around 1.7 and 1.75 million years, they discerned in the type specimen of the species, Olduvai hominid 7, what they thought was a human-like dexterous ability in the hands. They discerned a notable increase in endocranial volume, brain size, in relation to then known Australopithecus species, from, mostly from southern Africa, and a reduction in tooth size, which they saw as emblematic of an overall gracilization of the chewing apparatus in almost a human-like arrangement. And putting these three characteristics together, with the plentiful stone tools that had been recovered for years in these sediments, they arrived at the conclusion that this species, Habilis, belonged near the base of the genus Homo. So convinced were they of this conclusion that Philip Tobias, one of the co-authors of the species, was able to write in 1965 that Homo habilis represented the last remaining major gap in the Pleistocene evolution of the genus Homo, a story of human evolution, to quote him directly. And in this phylogeny, shown here from one of Tobias's papers, you can see the genus Homo is represented as a single, gradually evolving line characterized by uniquely human characteristics related to large brain size, reduced canine teeth, a perfection of bipedal locomotion. As we now see it, a slowing down of the growth trajectory, technology, language, and so forth. This was a package of characteristics seen in modern humans and thought to go back in time to at least two million years as an integrated whole. 
along this slowly emerging lineage culminating in Homo sapiens. The problem was, of course, is that older than two million years ago, there was virtually no fossil record that could be confidently associated uniquely with our lineage. And so whether these characteristics emerged piecemeal, stepwise, and therefore each demanding a separate explanation for origin, or whether they emerged as a package together where one explanation would take care of them all, could not be discerned. Now a lot has happened, as Bernard has pointed out, in the years since the early 1960s. And beginning in the 1980s, in large part due to the work that he and others have done in those years, we now see the genus Homo as a much more complicated uh, array of species. In my view, there are at least three broadly contemporaneous forms present at around two million years ago, whereas in 1964, the Leakeys would have said there's one in the genus Homo. Homo rudolfensis, Homo habilis, and Homo erectus. And one of the lessons that we have learned from the appreciation of greater diversity in our own genus at this period of time is the idea that there is not one adaptive package that can describe them all, but there are perhaps multiple ones. And the question is which, if any, are germane to the origin of the lineage itself? Or are they all, in one form or another, subsequent developments to the establishment of the lineage? Following on Bernard's talking about Toyotas and clades, my appreciation, my rendering of the information available from these three forms between around 1.7 and 2 million years ago is that they do, in fact, constitute a monophyletic group. This is not the place to go into a detailed rendition about the evidence for it, but I think it speaks fairly clearly to the idea that these three at two million did in fact share a single unified ancestry predating that time period, uh, 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 moving back towards the three million year mark. And the question is, where is it and who was it? And here's where we run up against the roadblock. Now, why is this important? More than just for the purposes of putting cladograms or phylogenies on the page, is because in the last decade or two, information from global climate change, paleoclimatic change, has made it clear that the time period in which many people suspect the Homo lineage arose was one of a very widespread, impactful change in global climate creating a cooled, a cooled uh, uh, expansion of ice sheets, reduction in sea levels, drying out of the African interior. And that time period has been, has been focused right after the three million year mark, 2.8, 2.7, and so forth. And that drying out of Africa has been seen as motive in the origin of uh, the robust Australopithecines, the origin of the genus Homo, even to stone tool manufacture. This has become the prevailing hypothesis that the complexification, if you will, of hominids and the origin of technology is all associated with the local impacts of these global changes. The problem is that there's no fossil evidence for the genus Homo that is informative on exactly what those changes were. 
at this particular point in time. We do have, of course, Oldowan tools at around 2.6 million, and as Bernard and others have pointed out, perhaps that is a proxy for the genus Homo, or maybe it isn't. It's not outside the realm of possibility, given what we know about how chimpanzees can make tools that some Australopith was capable of making them too. So questions and an absence of evidence. And here is the, the sum total of the fossil record of the genus Homo between two and two and a half million years ago. It would fit in a shoebox and leave room for a decent pair of shoes. <laughs> All of these fossils have been, have been promoted by one person or another, one group or another, as identifying the genus Homo older than 2.0 million years ago, and all of them have been doubted. And I'm not going to go through them here to, 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 point the, to point out the weaknesses and strengths of the various arguments, other than to say that the very fact that there's debate can be traced to the fact that there's relatively little evidence. And this is why groups return to Africa go to the field to African sites in East Africa and South Africa all the time, focusing on this time period, which in my view is one of the most intriguing of all the time periods in human evolution to increase our understanding of the fossil record. One area where the group from the Institute of Human Origins, which I direct at ASU, has been focusing on, of course, for years is Ethiopia. We've worked at the Lucy site more or less continuously since 1990. And colleagues of mine, Dr. Kay Reed at ASU and Chris Camposano and others, have expanded the work, the IHO work in Ethiopia, to a place called Lady Gararu. The scene here is slightly north and east of the Hadar area. What attracted them to this area? Two things. Knowledge that the, um, the environments represented by the sediments in this area look different from those that were very common and well understood in the Lucy time period, older than three million, some 20, 30 kilometers away at Hadar. And second, the suspicion verified since then that the rocks may actually represent a slightly younger time period. And that's important because at Hadar, as you'll see, we have Lucy's species, Australopithecus afarensis, up to about three million years. And then we jump across three quarters of a million years and we have a jaw of Homo with some stone tools at 2.3 million. Lucy, homo, older, younger, gap in the middle, let's try to fill it. And that was their mission. Now, in the lower Awash Valley, these areas around Hadar and Middle Lady and Gona and Dikika and Waranzo Mile, there are excellent sediments going backwards in time from around three million years ago. And we have an excellent set of sediments at places like Gona and Hadar that take us forward from around 2.5 million years ago. It is the time period in between that is critical and is germane to the questions about where the three forms of Homo that we know of at 2 million perhaps emerge from. And these sediments are present amply, now well studied, in the Lady Gararu area. Spanning in, time, spanning in time from around 2.8 million years to about 2.6 million years. And what's really important to understand about these sediments 
and this is both an advantage and a disadvantage, is that they are not continuous across time, but instead are exposed in fault blocks, adjacent fault blocks, which means that each block of sediment is a unified slice of time separated from another block next to it, which has itself a unified period of time with slight gaps in between them. Disadvantage because we can't trace evolutionary events continuously, but advantage because fossils that come, demonstrably come from particular fault blocks can be narrowed to a very narrow range of environments and associations with other animal species, etc. So a plus and a minus. And here is the Lady Gararu area. Kay and her team have been working here for more than a decade before they found their first hominid. Looking at the fauna, looking at the geology, trying to understand the environments. And by the way, this is an area called the Leodoita Basin. And you can see here, here's one fault block, here's another fault block, and here's a third fault block. There are about three or four fault blocks just exposed in this one view. Very clearly delineated. You can see one of the faults running right through here. Now, back in 2013, Kay and her group of paleontologists were surveying an area in the Leodoita Basin called the Garumaha block, just in the one fault block. And at the, at the base of this one hillside, there's a volcanic ash that is now well dated very precisely dated to 2.822, plus or minus a handful of years, in the million-year range. And um, on one winter's, our winter's day, uh, one of our graduate students at, at ASU, Chalacho Seon, was surveying up on this hillside and found this little jaw. That jaw eroded out of this hill, perhaps in a recent rainstorm, and resides about 10, maybe 12 meters above that volcanic ash, right? And on the hillside, there are no sediments up above, younger, that the jaw could have you know, floated down from. It eroded out of that hillside, and it's around 10 meters above the tuff. So here's the jaw after it has been cleaned up, and I'm here to tell you that it answers some questions. Answers some very specific questions doesn't answer all the questions. But there's a myth out here in paleoanthropology that unless you have a complete skeleton, you're not prepared to answer any meaningful questions. And I wish to dispel that myth. You know, since Raymond Dart named Australopithecus in 1925, there have been a plethora of hominid species named, recognized. Australopithecus africanus, Paranthropus robustus, Paranthropus boisei, Homo habilis, on and on. Many of them, if not most of them, on the basis of material that we here today would consider at best imperfect. A fragment of a jaw, a bit of a brain case, some teeth. And the fact of the matter is, is that in the intervening years, the vast majority of those species recognized on the basis of imperfect material have been verified as to be meaningful evolutionary units. We are not at sea when we have small fragments. We are limited in the type of questions we can ask. If complete skeletons were the answer to all of our questions, then Lucy would have settled once and for all the debate about when early humans made a, a commitment to terrestrial bipedality. Instead, 
she generated what is now going on to five decades of debate about that question. It depends on the question. And this question, the question that we address to this jaw, is it the same thing as Australopithecus at 2.8 million, or is it something different? And I engaged in that question with my former PhD student, Brian Vilmore, now at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and Chilacho Seum, our graduate student who found the jaw. And we came to the conclusion that in many respects it differs from your standard issue generalized Australopithecus jaw. Seen here on the left is a nice jaw of Lucy species, Australopithecus afarensis, and on the right is a reconstructed from a scan of the specimen from Lady Guerrero. We noticed that the jaw differs rather, these two jaws differ rather remarkably. The afarensis jaw is typically long and narrow with fat molar teeth, primitive premolars, and so forth. And our major comparison was to something like this. One of the jaws from the Demonisi site dated to about 1.8 million years, which is attributed to Homo erectus. And there's a much greater similarity in the shape of the dental arch, in the form of the teeth, the premolars being symmetrical, and so forth, to this 1.8 million year old Homo erectus jaw than to, um, than, to, uh, than to Lucy's species. And it extends also to the architecture of the jaw, and I'm not going to go into the details here, but underneath the premolar, the afarensis jaw is characterized by a highly sculpted out contour like a chimpanzee, probably due to the very large canine teeth, absent in the Lady Gararu jaw, the, uh, the back part of the mandible where the vertical part called the ascending ramus arises from the body of the jaw is located in the, in the lady jaw well back over the third molar, not forward as it is in, in Lucy's species over the second molar. And the upper and lower boundaries of the, of the, of the, of the mandibular uh, borders beneath the teeth and at the base uh, are, are more or less parallel. And, and in Australopithecus, they're not gets shallower to the rear. And by the way, it's also true of Australopithecus africanus, which is slightly closer in age to the lady jaw in South Africa, the same kind of, of thing. So when we made the comparison to jaws of the genus Homo, later in time, obviously, because we don't have much in the two and a half to three million year period, the similarities were very apparent to us. This is a jaw that exhibits characteristics that forecast anatomy that is common, the most common anatomical pattern in jaws of the genus Homo younger than two million. So we published it in the, not quite a year ago in the journal Science as a 2.8 million year old jaw of the genus Homo. Now does it answer questions about what were the adaptive packages present early on in the genus, in the lineage leading to us? Of course not. But what it does do is that it puts one data point in an area that is otherwise a void in the evolution of our own genus. Question is, what kind of environment did it live in? Did it live in a dry environment? Did it live in an open one? Germane to the questions about what drove early evolution of Homo. And data that's been put together by Kay Reed and given to me for this purpose, shows that this jaw is found in a context of animal species that lived in essentially grassland environments. 
very different in terms of how open or closed the habitats were compared to um, time periods in which Lucy's species lived. And this is just a couple hundred thousand years later. Now this, I, I hasten to add here, I am not asserting that the origin of the genus Homo is due to a drying out of the environment. But one thing we can say, because of the very confined time period of the Garumaha fault block in which the mandible and the fauna on which this inference is made suggests that the modal environmental signal at 2.8 in this area is one essentially of a grassland environment. And we can, we can see that by looking at some of the other animal fossils that have been found associated with the horizon from which that mandible has come. This is the Garumaha block. These are L. salafine bovid frequencies and the horse frequencies, both of which, of course, are well-known grazers. And together, in the Garumaha block, they constitute nearly 40% of the macrofauna. Excludes elephants and hippos and stuff. We're not saying it's dry, we're saying it's open. So it's 40% of the macrofauna. And that is very impressive compared to the frequencies back in Lucy's time, starting just 200,000 years earlier. Opens up areas for inquiry. And finally, some new data coming out of Kenya from Sonia Harman's group suggests that stone tool use, in fact, began not with the genus Homo, maybe, but perhaps as long ago as three and a half million years uh, when we have Australopithecus. And if these finds are verified, it opens up a whole new range of possibilities looking at the adaptive packages that constitute the ancestral platform from which the genus Homo emerged. And so, to finish up, here we have Lady Gararu, here we have our formerly first appearance, our former first appearance of stone tools, now pushed back here, perhaps, and does that imply that the genus Homo itself has even an earlier origin than we think of at 2.8, perhaps back as far as Lucy, or could Lucy herself have been the first stone tool maker? Thank you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Matt Cartmill, and I want to welcome you all on this webcast of the eighth iteration of the BU Dialogues in Biological Anthropology. This afternoon, we're going to be dealing with a very special and very important set of fossils that were discovered in Ethiopia in 1994, and that the describers and, and discoverers of these fossils have proclaimed and analyzed as really transformative and revolutionary finds, finds that have, have in a lot of ways erased what people thought about uh, the earlier stages of human evolution in the early 20th century, and uh, uh, the second half of the 20th century, and gone back to the earlier part. During the first half of the 20th century, there was a general consensus among people who studied human evolution and our relationship to the other primates that Human beings never went through a long-armed, ape-like, arm-swinging or brachiating phase in our evolution. That the human lineage had come off quite early, some people said all the way back in the Oligocene, uh, when uh, the ape ancestry was still largely quadrupedal. And the argument was that if human beings had become long-armed, long-handed, arm-swinging, ape-like animals, that that would have shunted us into a 
very specialized kind of locomotor adaptation from which our ancestors would never have been able to escape uh, into, a, into a bipedal kind of short-armed adaptation when they came to the ground. All of this changed uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s with the advent of what was called the new physical anthropology. Uh, and during this phase, the received wisdom switched over to a very different kind, to the opposite kind of, of assertion, of claim, that in fact the last common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees had been very much like a, a living chimpanzee, uh, with a few minor differences, both in its uh, ecology, its locomotor behavior, and probably in its social organization. The discovery of the Artipithecus ramidus fossils and the uh, Artipithecus uh, 500 skeleton from Aramis in Ethiopia in 1994 uh, changed all that in the eyes of its discoverers. And in 2009, uh, they let the rest of the world know about it and through an entire issue of science devoted to this fossil and other uh, fossils of the same animal recovered from the same general area. Their analysis concluded that the Artipithecus fossils showed that human beings had, in fact, never passed through an ape-like phase in our, in our evolutionary career, that the last common ancestor of human beings and chimpanzees had been a quadrupedal animal that moved around in a rather monkey-like fashion in the trees, and that the immediate ancestors of our own bipedal kind of animal, beginning with the Australopithecus material uh, from eastern and southern Africa in the Pliocene and Pleistocene, uh, the immediate ancestors of those bipedal apes had been animals that were not arm swingers, that were clambering quadrupeds in the trees and upright bipeds on the ground. And that the best example of that was the Artipithecus rabidus material. So today we've brought here uh, two very distinguished senior scientists, uh, primary uh, world-renowned experts on uh, human evolution and the morphology of human fossils uh, to talk about their changing perceptions of Artipithecus and what kind of effect the Artipithecus discoveries have had on their overall interpretation of the early phases of human evolution. So I'd like to begin our discussion by uh, uh, handing over the, uh, the podium uh, to Professor William Kimball, who is the director of the Institute of Human Origins at Arizona State University, who will tell us about the Artipithecus finds, place them in their phylogenetic and uh, evolutionary context, and then go on to tell us about the skull of Artipithecus and its dentition, and what sort of difference that makes for our understanding of early human evolution. Bill? Thank you very much, Matt, and I appreciate the invitation to uh, participate in these BU Dialogues in Anthropology with my good friend and colleague, Bill Jungers. And the essential message that I will bring today is that with respect to Artipithecus ramidus, despite its amazing and in some senses unanticipated constellation of anatomical features, it is a species that is indeed more closely related to us than it is to a, to a chimpanzee and that the cranial base, the base of the skull, constitutes some of the strongest evidence uh, for this conclusion. The work that I'm going to talk about today stems from a collaboration I've begun with colleagues Dr. Gensua, Tim White, uh, Yoel Rack, and Berhani Asfau, and uh, leverages work that was done in the early 1990s 
uh, by this group on some of the first discoveries of Artipithecus that became the holotype specimen, the type specimen of the species. To set the context, this is a phylogeny of African hominoids showing the relationship between gorillas, chimpanzees, and humans. The key question we want to ask about uh, this phylogeny, in particular, the point at which the chimpanzee and human lineages diverged, is what changed there? We are a lot of uh, characteristics, a long catalog of characteristics in which humans are different from chimps and other African apes. And the, the one question we want to know is, from upright posture all the way to lithic technology and sophisticated communication, when did these characteristics change? When, where, and how did we become unique? In order to answer that question, we must rely on the fossil record. And it was only within the past 20 years or so that the fossil record of human evolution became uh, populated by fossil assemblages that bear on the time when we last shared an ancestor with the chimpanzee between six and eight million years ago. Before that time, our earliest representatives were Lucy and other early Australopithecus species that took us back only three to three and a half million years ago. And so these fossils that have been found fairly recently fill a tremendous gap in the time scale of our evolution and hence in our understanding of it. The best known from the point of view of skeletal evidence is, of course, Artipithecus ramidus. This is a species that was found by Dr. Tim White's team in the middle Awash research area of the Ethiopian Rift Valley and has, as Matt suggested, really turned on its head some of our preconceptions about the earliest phases of human evolution. Artipithecus ramidus raises a number of key questions, the first of which is, is it in fact more, related, more closely related to us than it is to a chimpanzee or other apes? The second is, if it is in fact more closely related to us, how? Is it a linear ancestor of later humans, or is it a side or parallel branch? And the third is, to the extent that Artipithecus ramidus departs from the anatomy of humans and our closest living relatives, the chimpanzees, what does it say about the expected anatomy in the last common ancestor of chimps and humans? I can't address all those questions today, and my colleague and friend Bill Jungers will do so. I'm going to focus on the first one, and principally from the point of view of the skull. The best preserved specimen of Artipithecus ramidus, and this is a generous description because at its finding it was in terrible shape and required a great deal of effort to clean and reconstruct and understand, is the specimen ARAVP6-500, which is a partial skeleton that includes teeth, part of a lower jaw, and crushed, very badly crushed elements of the skull. The first inferences as to the human-like uh, status of Artipithecus came from one of the specimens that was found early on in the study of Artipithecus, ARVP 1-500, which is an undistorted skull base uh, consisting of two components of the temporal and occipital bones. Most of the inferences that I'll be talking about today come from this specimen. But in addition, there are characteristics of the canine teeth, a set of characteristics that also support the idea of a human relative status for Artipithecus that I will briefly review as well. 
Now, this is an image that shows the reconstructed skull of the uh, 6-500 skeleton juxtaposed with the temporal and occipital bones from the undistorted specimen from the year before, the 1-500 specimen. And this is a, a reconstruction done by Gensua using scanned digital images and published by him and his colleagues in the journal Science in 2009. And here it's compared with the skull of a chimpanzee and a human. Right off the bat, and in a very superficial, almost gestalt sense, we can see that the skull of Artipithecus is indeed very ape-like in a generic sense. A very tiny brain, first of all, of only about 300 cubic centimeters, actually smaller by a little bit than the average for chimps, certainly much smaller than what we see in humans. And hence, the brain case is very, long, is very low and small, coupled to a face that indeed has an ape-like aspect to it. You can see that the face, the maxilla, and the snout project downward and outward from the, uh, from the brain case. But as I will now show, these are superficial similarities that belie some other interesting differences that in part, uh, in comparison to chimpanzees, can be tied to uh, the canine teeth. So here we see the, uh, the canines of a chimpanzee uh, male individual, and is well known, even in very adult, uh, very advanced stages of wear, old adults, the chimpanzees and uh, the canines and chimpanzees are long and interlocking teeth. And of course, this relates to their lifetime of sharpening and honing in a polygynous social system. When we move to humans, naturally, we see that as, the in as individuals grow, the canines wear down from their tips so that their wear planes are essentially in line with those of all the other teeth. Now, down below here, uh, from Gensua's article in, uh, in Science on the dentition of Artipithecus, we can see six upper canines of Artipithecus in different stages of wear, from barely worn, a relatively young individual, all the way to a very old individual. And you can see, as you move from left to right, the wear on those canines is principally from the tip. That is, as the individuals are growing older, they are wearing their canines more like humans than they are like apes. This, it seems to me, as in supporting the work of Sua and others, uh, is one sign of a close phylogenetic relationship between Artipithecus and humans to the exclusion of chimpanzees and other apes. Now, if we move to the cranium itself, this is a superimposed uh, uh, image of the Artipithecus cranium on that of a chimpanzee. And in comparison of the two, you can see that unlike the chimpanzee with its tremendous projection of the snout beneath the nose and relatively deep face, the face of Artipithecus, despite its prognathism, is actually less projecting and less vertically deep than in an African ape. One of the other differences relates to the position of the occipital condyle, which is where the cervical vertebral column articulates with the base of the skull. And in Artipithecus, the occipital condyle sits almost right underneath the auditory opening, the external auditory meatus. Whereas in chimpanzees, the occipital condyle is in a much more posterior or rearward position. And we'll return to this in a little bit. One of the other differences relates to the area where the chewing muscles, the temporalis on the brain case, intersect with the neck muscles that support the head on the cervical vertebral column. 
And in humans and all other hominins, including Australopithecus, that junction is relatively low and horizontal on the back of the skull. If we move Artie aside and take a look at a chimpanzee, we can see that that junction is much more steeply angled because chimpanzees, being primarily quadrupeds, have that head slung out in front of a relatively horizontal cervical vertebral column, and the neck muscles reach way up on the back of the skull uh, to support it. A very pronounced difference between Artipithecus and uh, a chimpanzee. In this image, we see a bisect bisected images of a chimpanzee skull on the left and Artipithecus ramidus on the right. There are two key differences I'll draw your attention to. One is the extremely pronounced and high superorbital torus of the chimpanzee, which Artipithecus lacks. In chimps and gorillas, uniquely among the hominoids, you get this tremendous development of the superorbital torus that tends to obscure the brain case in facial view, not in arty. Similarly, look at the great depth of the maxilla in chimpanzees. As uh, this, this whole snout area is, uh, is quite a bit more extensive than in Artipithecus. To some extent, this traces to the very large size of the canines and canine roots in chimpanzee, in contrast to the relatively diminutive canines in their roots in Artipithecus. On the other hand, we can look at the very undeveloped uh, infraorbital plate. This is the area of the zygomatic bone and maxilla right beneath the orbit, which is quite shallow in chimpanzees, similarly shallow in Artipithecus. So this is a, a primitive ape-like retention in the Artipithecus face, and that's reinforced by the fact that both in Artipithecus and in chimpanzees and other African hominoids, the zygomatic arch, which carries the masseter, the other major chewing muscle, out alongside the brain case, is tucked in. It's not a flaring arch, as we see in some later uh, hominins, such as Australopithecus afarensis. And here we see two differences between Artipithecus and early Australopithecus, one of them being the tremendous depth of the infraorbital region beneath the, uh, beneath the orbit here in Australopithecus compared to Artipithecus and Note the great flare of the zygomatic out around the side of the brain case compared to the narrow, tucked-in zygomatic of Artipithecus. These changes most likely reflect, in Australopithecus, early steps toward specialization of the chewing apparatus, which is distinctive of this entire grade of, of early hominins and is not present in Artipithecus. Now, most of the inferences on the cranial bases I mentioned come from this specimen found in 1993. It's one of the holotype, the holotype specimen of Artipithecus ramidus, uh, ARAVP1-500. Two pieces of the cranial base. There is the midline present on the basi-occipital component, so we have good control over the position of bilateral landmarks. This was the specimen on which the first inferences were made by Tim White's team back in 1994 on a relatively short cranial base with an anterior foramen magnum and occipital condyle. We have taken that initial analysis, have examined it, and moved forward. And the results I'll now share with you, in my opinion, make the cranial base of Artipithecus even more similar to, to you and me uh, as compared to a chimpanzee. Here we see the uh, anterior point on the foramen magnum. And here we see the two openings 
of the uh, carotid canals on the cranial base. And it is generally true in, in humans and other hominins, these landmarks align in very similar coronal plane. Okay? So that's where we're going to start, and we'll take the analysis one step further. Now, in this slide, we have images, drawings of a gorilla skull on the left and a human skull on the right. You can see very clearly the difference in the position of the foramen magnum on the skull base, it being relatively posterior or rearward in the gorilla, much further forward on the skull base in the humans. We can render this difference graphically using rectangles and anchor the rectangles on the anterior point of the foramen magnum, called basion, and then run that rectangle forward to these uh, holes here called the foramina ovale, just passage for one of the cranial nerves here. And you'll note that in comparison to humans, in apes, that, that rectangle is, it describes a square almost, equal on all sides. Whereas in humans, the foramen magnum has moved forward, in essence, spreading out these neurovascular canals uh, in, all along the cranial base, and the rectangle is indeed elongated and short from front to back. The fact that the human cranial base is so short should not come as a big surprise to us when we look at data expressing the length of the cranial base in great apes shown here from uh, gorillas on down to bonobos or pygmy chimpanzees, all of which basically have a cranial base length expected for their skull size as expressed here by the breadth between the outer margins of the orbits, the so-called biorbital breadth. Australopithecus already shows a human-like shortening of the cranial base, according to these data, with two specimens of Australopithecus afarensis from Hadar falling well below the main cluster of apes seen above. The question is, how does Ardipithecus fall into this relationship? Well, we don't have the breadth between the orbits on the 1 slash 500 skull, but we can start with our rectangle. And if we use the anterior point on the foramen magnum as our anchor point, and some of the other landmarks preserved or projected uh, onto, the, onto the base, we can see that as in humans, the rectangle is wide and short in contrast to the elongated, uh, more square shape of the rectangle in, uh, in, in the great apes. So that's one indication that not only is the cranial base short, but it's also wide in Ardipithecus as in humans. And here are some metrical data to support this conclusion. We had to go into, um, to, to, to get these data, we had to make some estimates of cranial base length. Uh, I can certainly go into those in, in, in more detail in a, in a question period. We don't have time to go into it today. But here are a range of estimates of, uh, of cranial base length showing, in relation to a different skull size surrogate, the width between the auditory canals, showing that Ardipithecus ramidus falls with humans in having a relatively short cranial base compared to uh, the great apes. And if we put now an estimate of cranial base, or an actual measure of cranial base width into our equation, we can see that Ardipithecus, indeed, in both length and width, falls in with modern humans. Great apes with their long, narrow bases, humans with their short, wide bases. Here's a couple of Australopithecus skulls, and Ardipithecus falling with 
those. Now, there have been two main explanations for these kinds of changes in the cranial base in human evolution. One of them posits that the foramen magnum moved forward and the cranial base got short when humans stood up and the vertebral column, the cervical vertebral column, moved forward on the skull base in consequences as a comparison to, uh, to the situation uh, in, in the quadrupedal uh, great apes. And so when we look at skulls in cross-section, we can see, for example, that the cervical vertebral column exits or articulates with the back part of the cranium in the gorilla and other apes. In humans, on the other hand, it is much more centrally located, as we've seen, and descends vertically. The question is, is this a locomotor change? However, it's not the only change that occurs in the, um, in the skull uh, and, and in the skull of these, of these apes. Another difference has to do with brain size. So for example, the human brain is many times larger that, than that of an ape, and the most efficient way to pack increased volume in a given space is as a sphere. And the notion that uh, over time, the more spherical enlarged brain of humans essentially altered the shape of the back of the brain, bringing the foramen magnum forward on the skull base uh, in humans. So the question is, what is responsible for these changes? Is it bipedality or is it brain size? I would suggest that given the 300 cubic centimeter uh, brain size of Artipithecus, Locomotion is probably a more likely uh, functional tie to some of these cranial base uh, changes, speaking for myself. What Artipithecus shows us, however, that bipedality, as my colleague will discuss, was an early change uh, shortly after the, the split of the chimpanzee and human uh, lineages that cranial base structure, such as the position of the foramen magnum, if it is indeed tied to locomotion, as I would think, possibly reinforces the notion that Artipithecus was an orthograde biped, and early change in canine structure uh, as well, which is probably tied to social structure. With Australopithecus, we get a shift to more obligate terrestrial bipedality, and also, possibly related to that, a specialization, specialization in the masticatory system, which we already see developed in, in, in Lucy and other Australopithecus. And then, of course, it's not until the origin of Homo, the elaboration of, of our own genus and its lineage, we see an increase in cognitive ability, possibly tied to more sophisticated uh, lithic technologies as a mean, means of dealing with uh, resource utilization. So in conclusion, Artipithecus cranial base structure ties that species to us. It is an unusual creature, as you'll hear more about in a minute, to be sure. But its cranial base structure speaks unequivocally, in my view, to a tie to the human species. And that structure, therefore, in the central cranial base has been with us for at least four million years. And in my view, it is more likely to be related to body posture and locomotion than to brain size, given the very tiny brain of Artipithecus. I thank you very much.